Well, after being cooped up the past few months, I would love to go to a gym like that gym you saw in the video. We actually filmed that at a place called Rock Solid Warrior. It's in Fuquay if you want to check it out. Uh, but it is so good to be with you. If you don't know, I'm the Raleigh campus pastor. My name is Chase, which is kind of a weird name, I know. It's a present tense verb. And the only other person that has that type of name that I can think of is a musician named Sting. And that's the only way that I can work that first song into this sermon. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and watch the full experience later this week. But we are in week two of our Obstacle Course series. And it's a series where we're studying the temptations of Jesus, that time where God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And we're doing this in order to learn about some of the characteristics that God wants to create in the hearts of his followers. And so we used last week to do a little heart check and to set this series up. And this week, we're gonna be jumping into the actual story of Jesus's temptation. And we're gonna see the first obstacle that God brings into the life of Jesus. And we'll learn about the first characteristic that God wants to create in the hearts of his followers. And that is the characteristic of dependence. You see, God wants his followers to develop a habit of setting aside their own strength and wisdom and instead learn to depend on his strength and his power. And we're gonna see why this one characteristic of dependence can be so powerful in our lives. But what we're gonna see is that the way that God teaches us dependence is by bringing us to a place of weakness. Now, I know in America, we don't like that word weak, okay? It's sort of like a curse word. We do not look up to weak people. We look up to strong men and strong women. No one likes being weak. Like right now, I am physically weak. I don't know if you can tell or not. I had a good weightlifting routine going there for a few years, but now that the gyms have closed, I've lost all my gains, bruh. Like I had to move this podium out to speak earlier and I got winded. I've, I've lost a lot of my muscle mass and I really feel just out of shape. I actually, before I deleted Facebook, I posted this on Facebook a few weeks ago and all these people chimed in saying, you don't need a gym to get in shape. And they all recommended this newfangled exercise routine. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called cardio or something like that. I think it's French. Anyway, apparently you sweat and stuff and I am not all about that. Like I like to look like I'm in shape and that's about it because my wife is not attracted to a low resting heart rate. So I work on my guns, okay? But right now I am physically weak and it's not a good feeling. Uh, even worse than being physically weak, have you ever been in an environment where you felt mentally weak? I have, I do all the time. I was actually at Mike Lee's house the other week talking about my gym and saying, I wanna switch soon. And he goes to a similar gym. He says, why do you wanna switch? I say, well, they don't have that many free weights and the only barbells they have for like chest presses and shoulder presses is a Smith machine. So it's a barbell attached to these tracks. And he said, why do you wanna switch because of that? I said, well, because when you do a shoulder press, which I love, you can only go this high and it just stops. You can't get that full extension. And he kind of looked at me sideways and said, Chase, you know you can sit down and do those. And this light bulb went off in my head and I was like, you're right, Mike, you're right. You absolutely can do that sitting down. That thought had never occurred to me, even though I saw 10 people doing it every single time I walked into a gym. So I am not a smart person. This is a true story. My dad told me when I was young that pickles were vegetables grown in the ocean. That's why they were so, so salty. And I did not learn the truth until I was 25 years old, okay? So I am well acquainted with mental weakness. But we also go through seasons where we feel emotionally weak or even spiritually weak. And those are uncomfortable times. I think a lot of us are feeling that right now with this virus stuff. And the truth is, no one likes to be weak. I get that. But what I want you to see this weekend is that God will often bring us to places where we are weak in order to get us to depend on his strength. 
And that can make all the difference. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the story of Jesus' temptation. It's in Luke chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me set this story up. One of the questions that we have to answer right off the bat is this. Doesn't it say in the book of James that God doesn't tempt anyone? Isn't that the whole premise of this series? That God brings us into trials and temptations in order to grow us. How can that be if the Bible says that God doesn't tempt anyone? Well, it does say that. If you don't know the verses in James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So it's true, God doesn't directly tempt anyone, but as we learned last week, he does use temptations to grow us. He doesn't cause them, but he utilizes them. Remember that second Venn diagram from last week where we learned that everything that happens in our life happens according to the plan of a sovereign God. So sometimes these sorts of situations are called temptations. Other times they're called tests, and we see them all the time. Uh, Abraham was tested with Isaac. Jesus, one time he was talking to Peter and he says, Peter, you're gonna be tempted by Satan. Satan's gonna sift you like wheat and that's a part of God's plan. God's gonna use that. And that's the first truth that you need to hear this weekend, that the circumstances where God can prepare you the best are also the circumstances where Satan can tempt you the most. In fact, sometimes they are one and the same. When God is working on you the most, when he's transforming you and when he's shaping you, it's in these moments that Satan likes to attack, where he tries to derail you. But God is so wise and so powerful that he accounts for these temptations and uses them to transform you even more. And so what we see in the Bible is that often Satan's attempts to weaken you are used by God to do the opposite, to strengthen you and to prepare you. And so that's what this story is. This is God preparing Jesus for what he would face one day. This is not Jesus's main battle. That's the cross. This is a training ground of sorts. So he's just been baptized by John the Baptist. The father has just spoke those amazing words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, the Holy Spirit has rested on him in the form of a dove. And this is the kickoff to his three years of public ministry. So now we're ready to jump in. Read with me in Luke chapter four, verse one, it says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Now this is a short story, so we have to, uh, we have to notice every single word that Luke uses here. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted? Was it an accident? It was because he was led by the Spirit. It was God's plan. And it's also called the wilderness. So he was just in the desert with John when he was baptized. So apparently he goes to somewhere even worse. This word wilderness in the Greek is actually eremos, and it literally means desolate. So this is a rough place. And notice he wasn't just passing through. The Spirit told him to remain there for 40 days. That's a long time. And it's hot during the day. And it's cold at night. He has no shelter. There's wild animals everywhere. And to make matters worse, there's not any food. I mean, even Bear Grylls gets food, okay? And then what seems like an obvious statement, Luke says, and at the end of 40 days, he was hungry. And we're like, duh. But Luke is intentionally adding that. Luke is showing us that Jesus, though fully God, is still fully human. And so he has needs and desires like all of us, including the need to eat food. Now, this is a weird way to kick off a public ministry, isn't it? We would expect fanfare and a celebration and a moving speech in front of thousands of people. 
But instead, we get Jesus alone and hungry, being tempted by Satan in a place of desolation. There's no people, there's no shelter, there's no food. This is a complete place of weakness. And so Satan swoops in and capitalizes on this moment. Now notice what Luke says. He says, for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. So it wasn't just three times that Jesus was tempted. It was dozens of times over the course of those 40 days. And so the temptations that we have recorded are just some of the big themes of these temptations. The first one is this, uh, Luke 4, 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And automatically, I know all of you are like, finally, I deal with this temptation every day to turn stones into bread. I can't drive by a rock without this overwhelming urge to turn it into ciabatta. Okay, no, no one is like that. I get it. It's a weird temptation. And one that at first glance doesn't seem like it has a whole lot to do with our lives. But hang with me. This doesn't have a whole lot to do with bread. What Satan basically is saying is this. Hey, Jesus, why are you suffering so much? Why is God holding out on you? Why isn't God providing for your needs? And he's trying to get Jesus to question God, to doubt his heavenly father. You see, there's a reason that Satan refers to him as the son of God. That's not a term that Jesus uses for himself. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And so Satan is calling to mind what had happened just a few days prior, that moment where Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my beloved son. And Satan is saying, if that's true, then why are you starving to death in a desert? That's no way to treat a son. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt God's goodness and he's trying to get Jesus to provide for himself, to take matters into his own hands, to take himself out from under that dependent relationship with God and to rely on his own strength and his own wisdom. He's trying to, get, to set Jesus's future ministry on a trajectory that says, I can do this without God. If God's not gonna feed you, feed yourself. If God's not gonna provide for you, provide for yourself. And this, my friends, is what Satan has been trying to do from the very beginning. And what we're gonna see in this story is that Satan uses the same tactics over and over again. It's like he's got the same three bullets. He just shoots at us over and over again. One of the first things that Satan will say to you as a Christ follower is, you don't need God. You can do this on your own. And that's a pull that we all feel all the time in our marriages, with our kids, in our jobs. And it's even worse here in America where because of our level of education and high quality of life, it's really easy to begin believing that we don't need God for large portions of our lives. But here's what God knows and here's what we forget all the time. When it comes to God's promises for your life, when it comes to experiencing all that God has for you as a spouse and a parent and a follower of Jesus, you can't accomplish those things on your own strength. Now you can say, I do, to your spouse in front of a preacher, but you can't have a life-giving, lifelong marriage without him. You just can't. And the longer I live, the more I really understand that I don't have what it takes to be the type of Christ follower or husband or father or pastor or friend that he has called me to be. That's gonna take something supernatural. If my marriage is gonna be what God wants it to be, it's gonna take something supernatural. If my kids are gonna have the type of father that God wants them to have, it's gonna take something supernatural. In order to experience God's promises for my life, it's gonna take me reaching out to a strength and a wisdom outside of myself. But here's the thing, we don't like to do that. You know why? 
It hurts our pride. It makes us feel like we don't have what it takes. It's like we started letting our daughters each cook one meal a week for us, and you know what happens. When they're setting up the kitchen, what do they say to me? I don't want your help, get out of here, I got this, I can do this. But what happens about 10 minutes later? Yeah, I get 30 questions over the next hour. Can you open this jar? Can you turn the oven on? Can you handle the chicken? Because I don't like to get messy, right? They, they don't like it, but eventually they need my help. And that is the same for us. So God knows we don't like to do this. So what God has to do is get us into a corner where we can't rely on our own strength and wisdom, where all we can do is rely on him, where our only option is to reach out for his power. And so he pins Israel up against the Red Sea with the Egyptians breathing down their necks and nowhere to go but through. He gets Abraham on top of a mountain and demands a sacrifice. And the only living thing there besides Abraham is Isaac. He tells Peter, hey, get out of the boat. Come walk towards me. And there's only water in between. So he puts us into these places of weakness so that we finally unplug from our own strength and tap into his power. I want you to turn with me to another story in the Bible because this is so important. I want you to see it two times and hopefully this is gonna help make sense of what God's doing in some of your lives. And there's dozens of stories like this, but this is my favorite because of how clear it is. It's the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And so to kind of set this story up, um, the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've been in the desert for 40 years, and now they're in the promised land. And if you're not familiar with Gideon, which most of you will not be, and that's fine. Basically, Israel's in a really rough spot. They've disobeyed God, and God has allowed the Midianites to take them over. And after a few years of being oppressed, they finally repent and call out to God for help. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you victory over the Midianites, and I'm going to do it through a guy named Gideon. Now, Gideon is not exactly the picture of strength. He's not a well-seasoned warrior. He's basically a big scaredy cat. In fact, when God calls on Gideon to, to uh, take over the Midianites, he's actually pretty sarcastic. He comes to Gideon one day and says, oh, brave, courageous, strong Gideon, I'm gonna use you, oh, brave one, to free Israel. And Gideon hears that and he's like, me? You talking to me? you do know I'm the youngest member of the smallest family and the smallest tribe of all of Israel. Like I am the last person you should pick. I have statistical data that proves it. And God says, in effect, that's exactly why I chose you, because you're the weakest. And so he finally works up the nerve to do what God asks him to go and lead a resistance against the powerful Midianites. And I want you to see this pattern here. What the spirit did with Jesus, leading him to a place of weakness, this is what he does with Gideon. And this is what he absolutely will do in your life as well. You see, at first Gideon relies on his own strength and he puts together this battle pan and he amasses a huge army of 32,000 fighting men. Now that might sound like a big army, but it's nothing compared to the Midianites. And it's actually not just the Midianites, it's the Amalekites as well. Gideon can see them in this valley and it says they look like locusts. There's too many to count. He says, just, uh, just looking at their camels, they're like the sand on the seashore. So that's what they're up against. Read with me in Judges chapter seven, it says this. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that's Gideon, that's his nickname, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. And the Lord said to Gideon, listen to this. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me saying my own strength has saved me. 
Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Did you catch that? Gideon, you got too many men in your army. You're too strong of an army for me to use. So he says, if any person is afraid, let them leave. And by the way, Gideon, that doesn't include you. You have to stay. So 22,000 people left. This is not a trickle. This is a mass exodus. And again, this is the opposite of what we would expect in this situation. God is making them weaker, not stronger. But it's because, he says, he knows what's in the human heart. He says they are too many lest they boast. And this is crazy. Israel is in its weakest state yet. They are being taken advantage of and beat to a pulp day in and day out. And yet God knows they get one victory and they'll go back to saying, look at how strong we are. We can do this thing on our own. We don't need God. Only one victory and we would turn and say, we did it. We don't need to depend on him. And that's right where Satan wants them. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so God says, listen, I won't put my people, the people that I love in that situation. I won't let them to continue to believe in the illusion of their own strength. So I'm gonna put them in a situation where there is no possible way they can ever attribute the victory to themselves. And in a weird way, that's grace, that's love. Well, look at what happens next. It says, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I'll thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took them in down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap at the water with their tongues like this, like a dog laps, from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. So God says, 10,000 men, still too much. Let's make this group smaller. Tell the guys to drink some water. Now, lapping did not make these guys better soldiers, okay? There's nothing symbolic about any of this. This is just a random way to make Gideon's army weaker. So 9,700 of them left. Well, now we're down to 300. And the enemy is just as strong as ever. Now imagine you're Gideon. That's a scary place to be. But there's a turning point in Gideon's life that evening. And I want you to learn from this. You see, God's gracious and he gives Gideon a sign that night. He leads him into the Midianite camp and he lets him overhear this conversation between one, two soldiers where one soldier had a dream and it's a weird dream. You should go and read it. But basically at the end, he says, I think this dream means that the Israelites are gonna kick our butts. And the other soldier says, yeah. Me and a few other guys think the same. We're afraid of Israel. So his confidence is boosted and he has this turning point where he really gets it. You see, Gideon has constantly been thinking about his circumstances all the what ifs, all the things that could go wrong. He's been thinking about his shortfalls and his lack of courage and his weaknesses about how small his army is compared to the enemy. But what he realizes finally is that none of that matters. He realizes that this weakening process is actually setting the stage for God to move in a big way. He has this light bulb moment where he realizes his circumstances don't matter. The size of the enemy, the size of the obstacle doesn't matter. All that matters is what God has said. And God has said, Gideon, I will give the Midianites over to you. And this is what Jesus so clearly embodies in the first temptation. This is God getting, getting to the place that Jesus really is already at. You know how Jesus responds to Satan when Satan says, hey, turn this stone into bread. Go independent of God. You don't need God. 
Jesus responds, I'm gonna take a verse out of Matthew because it's fuller, but it says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, it doesn't matter that I'm hungry, that there's no food and that I'm weak. It doesn't matter that everything seems to point to me starving to death soon. What matters is what God has said. And he has said, he'll be with me. He said he'll provide for me. So instead of taking matters into my own hands, I'm gonna continue to depend on God. And what we see, if you continue to read that story, is that at the end of the 40 days of temptation, God does provide for him miraculously. He sends angels to minister to him. They feed him. He gets food from heaven. But now Gideon has learned this lesson. And now Gideon is ready. He's got it. He's depending on God. Now, you want to see what a life of real and true dependence on God looks like? This is it. It's crazy. See, God gives them, uh, God gives Gideon this crazy battle plan, and Gideon doesn't question it, and he starts to share it with his 300 men. So he draws them all together. He splits them into three groups of 100, and he says, I'm going to start handing out some weapons. Now, there's no spears, there's no bows, there's no swords. He says, some of you are going to get some empty jars, so pass these along. And yeah, th these are trumpets, so each, one, each person needs one of those. And the guys are like, hey, where's the swords at? And Gideon's like, you're not going to be needing any swords, but we do have some candles, okay? So uh, we're going to put these in jars, pass those out. And you can just imagine the soldiers like holding a, a jar and a trumpet and just like, oh, I should have bent down to drink. Like, what have I gotten myself into? It's not even a tuba. Like, I could do some damage with a tuba, but a trumpet? So he has 300 men with trumpets and some jars with some candles in them, there is not a chance in the world that this ragtag group of jar-holding soldiers can do anything. This is the picture of weakness. But listen, that's the point. Trumpets and jars and candles can't defeat Midian. If Midian's gonna be defeated, God's gonna have to do something special with those trumpets and jars. Something miraculous has to happen or there's gonna be no hope. Or watch what happens. Verse 17, it says, watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. And they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding uh, in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So they win. They win, but without any military skill at all. They blow the trumpet. They smash the jars. They hold the torches. They yell and then they just stand there. And Midian is so confused at the sudden light and the sound, they start killing everyone they saw, which was their own army, and then they hightail it out of there, and they ran. This is what happens when we unplug from our own strength and wisdom, and we plug into God's power. I love the way the story ends. Chapter 8, 28, it says, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. At the end of Jesus' temptation, where he remained dependent on God, when that time was over, Luke records for us in chapter 4, it says, Jesus, after this was all said and done, returned to Galilee, not in weakness, but in what? In the power of the Spirit. 
and news about him spread through the whole countryside. You see, it's only through weakness that God provides strength. God accomplishes his plan through the dependence of his followers. And this is what God wants to do in your life, or this is what God is up to in your life right now. Some of you are in between a rock and a hard place. You're in an uncomfortable place of weakness. You're facing a marriage that seems beyond repair, a child who just won't respond. You're going through some turmoil with an extended family member. You're not sure how you're going to make ends meet this month. You've been uh, fighting an addiction for years. And as you look at that situation right now, you would have to say, I don't have what it takes to fix this. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. Listen, that's the point. What this story teaches us is that the areas in your life that you are struggling in the most are not the areas where you are too weak. They are the areas that you are still too strong, or at least you think you are, where you feel confident and capable to handle it yourselves. It's the areas that you need to stop depending on your own strength and press into what God has said and plug into his power. I've had a few conversations over the past few weeks and months, and I just know some of you are really facing a dead-end marriage right now. And this lockdown has forced you to confront some really hard truths. And maybe you've been doing your best to to salvage what's left of of this marriage, but right now, this weekend, if you're honest, you'd say, "I, I don't really see a way to move forward. And maybe you're at a point where you've tried counseling You've tried communication and nothing seems to work. And right now you are on the verge of giving up because you don't have what it takes to fix it. Listen, that's the point. Don't give up. God has brought you and your spouse to a place where you have to lay down your illusions of strength and wisdom and start depending on him. Listen, we serve a God who brings beauty from ashes who brings life from death, and he absolutely can and will save your marriage, but it's not gonna be through your own strength and wisdom. It's only gonna be when you hold hands with your spouse and you sort of lock eyes and you say, I can't do this. We can't do this. We've tried it our way. We've tried to fix this, and we just can't, but God can. And then together you go to God in prayer and you say, God, forgive us for trying to do this on our own. We need your help. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. Rescue this marriage. And when you get to that place, when you get to that place of humble dependence on God and are willing to do whatever he asks you, no matter how crazy it is, that's when your marriage will begin to change. I've seen it happen. But it takes dependence. You know, when I was at my weakest, besides marriage and parenting, which is every day, that's when we first stepped out in faith to plant a church in 2014. And just to be honest, I'll admit this. When I first started, I thought, you know, I think I'm pretty good at 15 or 20 things ministry-wise. I think this could be a success. And God saw that in my heart and said, "Uh uh-oh, I need to fix this. Like, now I know. I'm like mediocre at one or two things, but God's faithful. So, I came face to face with my weakness when I started fundraising. We needed money to start this church. And so it was in the fall of 2014. And wouldn't you know it, I started fundraising four weeks after Hope Community Church, you guys, started fundraising for the Apex Campus. (laughs) 
So the only people I knew were Hope people. So I, I took all these people from Hope out to lunches and dinners to raise funds. And some of you listening are, right now, it was you. And you're thinking, I thought you just wanted to hang out. I did, but I also wanted some money. But every single one of these people said they couldn't help because they had committed their extra funds to the Apex campus. And they should. They should do that. That's their church. So three months go by. I must have taken 30 or 40 people out to lunch, made phone call after phone call, and no, no money. So I'm at this church planner retreat in November of 2014. I'm thinking, this is dead on arrival. Like we have failed before we've started. And I'm with two other church planners and we're going around saying, how's fundraising going? Like, I'm good, got 100 grand. This other guy's like, yeah, I got 250 grand already. Chase, how are you doing? I got zero, I got nada. And so one of the church planners kind of said, you know, are you having a hard time? I'm like, yeah, I don't think I can do this. So he said, let's pray. So we literally got down on our knees at this beach house we were staying at, and I just prayed, God, I can't do this. I am too weak. I don't have the skills, but you can, so would you do this? And as soon as we said amen, my phone dings, and it's an email from this guy that I had never met. He served in Hope's Raleigh Nursery for years when my wife oversaw that part of the ministry. And he said, I know your wife, and I've heard about you, and we love you guys. I'd like to donate to your church. Uh, how can I give you $10,000 in stock? And I was like, I have no idea, but I will figure it out, right? And over the next nine months, God provided absolutely everything we needed through people that I still have never met, 85 individuals, most of whom I don't know. God provided our needed funds. And I learned deep down in my heart the truth of that verse. When I am weak, he is strong. So I learned dependence. And the cool thing about dependence is that that didn't just create thankfulness but it actually created boldness and courage. You see, the next year in the fall of 2015, we had launched as a church and I had spent all of that startup money on sound systems and chairs and staff members. And so I looked at my bank account about three months after we had launched and we had just enough money for about four or five weeks to pay my staff um, and, and pay the bills. And I looked at that bank account and you think I was worried? In a strange way, I wasn't because I had seen God come through. I knew when I was weak, God would be strong. And sure enough, that next week, someone from one of our partner churches walked in and said, here's a check for $20,000. I forgot to give it to you. I was like, thanks a lot. And then there was a check for $10,000 from a Korean Sunday school class from one of our partner churches, and I didn't know any of those people. And it created this boldness and this courage in me. You think Gideon was afraid during the next battles that he faced? No. You see, I was thinking about this this week when I think about our crazy vision here at Hope to reach the triangle and change the world. I was thinking, you know what God could do with a huge budget and beautiful buildings and highly qualified ministry experts and church strategists? Like that much, not much. It might look impressive at first, but it won't last. But what do you think God could do with 10,000 people that don't have the ministry degrees, but that feel the weight of the lostness of their city. We're millions of people out there and thousands more moving every single month that don't know the, the love of their heavenly father. And they just go to God and say, God, we don't have the perfect strategy. We don't have the perfect plan, but you do God. So we'll do whatever it takes. We'll start neighborhood Bible studies in our backyards with two or three people if you want us to. We'll hand out food and Bibles in our parking lot and try to pray for those people. We'll tutor kids. We'll love on students with special needs. We'll start churches and school buildings. We will put ourselves in situations where if you don't come through, we'll look foolish. What do you think God could do with a group of people like that? 
I think God could change marriages and change families, change neighborhoods, and one by one, eventually change the world. And I believe that. But we have to acknowledge our weakness and depend on God. It's all about dependence. That's what makes all the difference. I want to leave you with a verse out of 2 Corinthians where Paul writes this. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Where would we be without it? Father, I pray for all those listening right now that you have brought to a place of utter weakness. Maybe it's relational weakness. Maybe it's physical weakness. And they're right on the verge of giving up. Father, I pray that you would lift up their eyes that you would tune their ears to not what their circumstances say, not what the people around them say, but to what you have said. And let them know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are on the verge of doing something spectacular through their weakness. I pray for marriages to be restored, relationships to be healed. I pray for thousands of people to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we, as a people here at Hope Community Church, unite in our dependence on you. Would you do this for your name and for your glory? And it's in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.